We're jumping into John chapter 19, uh, and we're continuing in the trial of Jesus in this text. Our series that we've been in for, for over a year now, and we'll finish in about a month, is called Love and Trouble. And uh, really, I mean, we've seen it on every page, but, but really honing into focus here in John 19, we see the love of Jesus and the trouble that it creates for him. And in some ways, the trouble that it creates for those around him, a, a, a crisis of conscience and a crisis of, of assessment. In this text, which we read a second ago, we see Jesus on trial before Pilate. And what's interesting about it is that in the midst of the accusations, there are, there are multiple things that are said about Jesus in the section we're looking at this morning. So in these 16 verses, there are a lot of things that are said blatantly about Jesus. There are also a couple of things that are alluded to or things that are pointed to sort of inadvertently. But there are a lot of statements that are made about Christ in this text. Some of them are true. And sometimes the true things that are said about Jesus are said sort of unwittingly. And then there are things that are said about Jesus that are absolutely false, but the people that are saying them don't seem to see it. And so for our purposes this morning, I want us to think about the way in which Jesus is both addressed and the way in which Jesus is approached, because those two things have to work together, not just what people say about Jesus, but also what they do about him. And in this particular section, we're going to have to wrestle with that thing because it, it creates then some questions for us about the way we talk about Jesus, who we believe he is, what we say about him, and then what our actions do to either back up what we've said or to deny it. This is a heavy text, and I, and I want to just acknowledge that from the outset. You know, much of, this, um, much of this study in the Gospel of John has been exciting. There have been moments of miraculous healing and moments of Jesus doing incredible things or saying beautiful things or rescuing people. There's been, even just in the last couple of months, we've seen this sort of intimate conversation between Jesus and his disciples as he prepares them for his death and resurrection. Uh, we've seen this intimate conversation between Jesus and his Father as he prays for himself and his disciples and, and for us. But now we've gotten into the section where things begin to get really dark. And this is a dark passage. There's some heavy stuff that happens here. When we read in verse 1 about the fact that Jesus was flogged, I want to make sure that we're, that we're painting an accurately dark picture because this isn't just that Jesus kind of got slapped around a little bit. Flogging in the first century under the authority of the Romans was the kind of thing that killed many people who faced it. They would use a, a, a whip that had actually multiple different strands and there would be pieces of bone and glass that were tied to the back. Josephus in his historical accounts will tell us that there are people whose bones were exposed through this type of flogging. That there are people whose, whose vital organs fell out. And I don't mean to be overly graphic with you, but I think there can be a pendulum with Christians where sometimes we focus too much on the darkness and too much on the brutality and too much on the violence and we miss what can be learned or the very opposite can be true. Sometimes with Christians we go, yeah, yeah, I don't want to hear about the blood and the guts and the violence and the brutality. Just tell me about the good things I can learn out of here, right? We don't want to do either of those. We don't want to over-accentuate the brutality, but we also don't want to look away from the brutality because it highlights for us the peace and the grace and the sacrifice of Jesus. One of my friends this week in our preparation said uh, that to, to him there is so much darkness now as we get into the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, it just feels like a black backdrop. But he said Jesus in the midst of that black backdrop is like a shiny diamond on black velvet, right? He sparkles all the more because of the darkness that is the, the, the behind the scenes here. So as we look at the text, I don't want you to turn your eyes away from the heaviness. 
I don't want you to turn your eyes away from the violence. We have to ex- understand and, and capture the fact that Jesus was brutalized here unnecessarily. But we also don't want to linger too long on that because we do want to see the way in which Jesus shines in the midst of it and what we can learn from it. While we see Jesus on trial in John 19, what I found very interesting in my preparation is that it's actually those who are trying Jesus whose lives are exposed. Jesus is on trial, but more accurately, what we see happening in this case is the life of Pilate, the belief of Pilate, the conviction of Pilate put on trial. The belief and the conviction of the chief priests and the Jews put on trial. And this happens a lot of times. There's much that can be learned about those who are making the accusations whenever someone is being accused. I had a a deal a couple of months ago where I was... uh, I was getting dressed in the morning. Well, you should know, I have, uh, I have two older sons. My, my older son uh, is uh, 19. He's a sophomore in college. And then I have a, uh, my second son is a senior in high school. And then my youngest son is in seventh grade. But my two older guys are at a place now where uh, they can, we can share clothes. Like we're close enough in size that they'll borrow my shirts or they'll borrow my jeans or they'll borrow my shoes or whatever. And they, sometimes I'm like, where's my jacket? And then I realize that my kids have borrowed it and I'll never see it again, right? So on one one hand, I don't mind sharing my stuff with the kids at all. You might be a parent who shares stuff with your kids. I'm happy to let them borrow stuff, especially when they take good care of it. It means a lot to me that my children have, you know, great fashion sense. So that's, uh, that's affirming. But uh, a couple of months ago, I was getting ready in the morning and I go to put on a pair of socks and I realized that the pair of socks I was putting on, I got them clean out of the drawer, but the pair of socks I was putting on had uh, blood stains on them. And my son, Jack, is a, he's a welder and an auto mechanic. And so he's always kind of coming home a little dirty and dinged up and whatever. I get that. But I want him to take good care of my stuff. So I see this pair of socks has blood stains on them. I'm like, Dang it, like he wrecked a pair of my socks, you know? So I take those socks off, I throw them away, I go to get another pair of socks out of the drawer, and as I'm putting those on, I realize those socks have blood stains also. And so I call to my wife and I'm like, honestly, like I don't have enough money to keep buying more and more socks. Like if he's gonna borrow my stuff, he has to take care of it. And if he gets a stain on it, he needs to tell us so that we can, you know, put stain remover on it. But like, I can't be going to my drawer and pulling out socks that are blood stained all the time. Like this stinks, you know? So I throw that second pair away. I go to the drawer again. I pull out another pair, third pair of socks. I go to put them on also blood stained. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like if it was a cartoon, I'd had steam blown out of my ears. Like I was ready to ground him and get in his face. I I was going to text him and be like, well, you're ruining all my stuff. And, as, and then right as I pulled my phone out to text him, I realized that I had a gash on my finger and uh, <laughs> that I was, I was bleeding a lot. And I, I don't know when I cut myself, maybe in the shower or something, but I cut my finger and I literally was the one that was bleeding all over my socks. But I didn't want to take credit for that. I wanted to point it out. Jack, you know, it's interesting what is revealed about the accuser in the midst of an accusation, right? The things that are revealed about the darkness of my own heart as I point the finger at somebody else when in fact I'm the culpable one. There are multiple things, as I've already said in this text, that are said about Jesus. I want to look at them in succession, and I want to understand those that are true, those that are false, and what those statements say about the people that are making them and about the Lord Jesus. It says this in John chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. I've already talked about the brutality of that. There are people who did not survive that process. Jesus does. It says, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. 
They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. We see them take thorns and force them down over the head of Jesus. Uh, the, the idea here is that those thorns would dig in. So by the time that we're, we're looking at Jesus later, he's probably his entire visage is covered with blood. He's beaten. They would say, hail king of the Jews. The first thing I want you to see that people said about him, and this, the first title they use for him in this text is king of the Jews. Now, interestingly, that is exactly who he is. This is not an inaccurate statement. They have, they have stated it correctly. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Not only the king of the Jews, but the king of everyone. The king of all creation. The king of kings and lord of lords. Revelation is very clear that there is a day coming when everyone who has come up against the lamb will be defeated because he is the lord of all lords and the king of all kings. And so it isn't that they're wrong. In fact, if we didn't see the punching and the brutality and the torture, if we didn't see the crown of thorns and the flogging near to death, if we just heard the soldiers calling out, Hail, King of the Jews, we might be tempted to go, Hey, that's cool. There are some Roman guards who understand who it is they're talking to. I mean, it's very cool that they're saying the right thing about him. But none of us would do that, right? In this text, none of us listen to what the Roman guards are saying and, and affirm it. We go, no, this is awful. We know that it's mockery. The reason why we know that it's mockery is that their words are not backed up by their actions. You see, it's one thing to say, hail king of the Jews and bow before him. To submit yourself and to kneel in humble submission before him. Had they done that, we would go, yeah, they mean it. The reason why we can look at the text and say, they don't mean it, they are mocking him, is because of what they have done in accordance with what they have said. You see, they're punching him in the face, and they've put the crown of thorns, and they've beaten him and flogged him and tortured him. They've draped him up in a purple robe. And so we look at what they've done and we discount what they've said. Can I tell you that as I studied the text and I thought about them calling him the king of the Jews, I couldn't help but be convicted because in our own lives and in my own lives, there are many times where I say the right thing. I know who Jesus is. The words that come out of my mouth are the right ones, but my actions deny the truth of my belief. Does that make sense? You see, there are many of us who know the right things to say. There are many of us who say things about Jesus that are accurate. Many of us who have studied the Bible, who've spent our time studying theology, who can quote the scriptures, maybe even teach the scriptures, but being able to say the right stuff out of your mouth, if it's not followed with a life of submission and obedience, makes the things you've said out of your mouth moot. Does that make sense? They're pointless at that, at that point. The moment that our lives don't follow what has been said. I was convicted in studying this about all the places in my life. I mean, I, I get up on a regular basis and declare things about Jesus that are true out of my mouth. But if my life doesn't display that, if I don't put that on display in the lives of my children and in the lives of my wife, in the lives of the people I interact with during the week, it doesn't matter that I get it right verbally. It has to be matched with my action. So here we see the Roman guards, they're saying something about Jesus. They call him the king of the Jews, and they're not wrong. He is, in fact, the king of the Jews and the king of everyone. But their actions deny that they truly know what they're saying. It's, an, it's sort of an unwitting acknowledgement of who he is. It's a brutal scene. Not only do we see them call him the king of the Jews, the second thing we see in verse 4 is sort of implied Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. The second thing Jesus is called in this text is innocent. 
And in fact, if you look at chapter 18 and 19 together, we see Pilate say that Jesus is innocent some six or seven times. Multiple times he comes in and out. He, he goes into Jesus and he talks to him and he goes, yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong with this guy. He's innocent. He's guilty of nothing. And he comes out to the crowds. And then in response to the crowds, his own personal conviction changes and he goes back in, right? And he talks to Jesus some more and he goes, no, 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 this guy's not guilty of anything. Now let me tell you, in the same way that Jesus truly is the king of the Jews, even though the Roman guards didn't mean it, Jesus is absolutely innocent. When Pilate says, I see no guilt in him, when Pilate says he's not guilty of any charge, Pilate has that correct. Jesus is not only not guilty of the charges that the Jewish leaders have laid at his feet, he's not guilty of anything. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is perfect in every thought and word and deed and attitude. He is literally sinless. And had to be for the sake of being an acceptable substitute for you and I. Pilate doesn't even know the depth of how right he is when he says, I find no guilt in him. Because there is no guilt in Jesus. But what is convicting is that despite the fact that in the inner conviction of Pilate, he finds no guilt in the Lord Jesus. Pilate continues to torture and brutalize and flog and accuse. And ultimately will crucify Jesus to the contradiction of his own conviction. He's back and forth. He's in and out. I wonder if there are maybe some of you sitting in the room today who are undecided about Jesus. Maybe you come to a service like this or you open the Bible at your coffee table at home. Maybe you've listened to podcasts or whatever online and you've begun to explore who this Jesus is. And there's a stirring in your heart as the Spirit of God draws you to the Son of God. And you go, yeah, I want to follow this man. I want to believe in this God. I want to surrender myself to this Jesus and be rescued and redeemed by him. Maybe you come into a room like this one on a Sunday and while you're in here, it feels like you're ready to give your whole life to Jesus. But you walk out and the pressures of this world, the voices, the other things that are sort of weighing upon you, the skepticism of other people, the ridicule, maybe the questions of other people, it's an in and out proposal just like it is for Pilate. And while it may look like he sort of waffles back and forth, what we ultimately understand is that making no decision about Jesus is the same thing as making a negative decision about Jesus here. Pilate can't sit on the fence. He can't just absolve himself entirely. He tries in Matthew 27 to wash his hands of this man's blood. Can I tell you what? The blood of Jesus is on Pilate's hands. In the same way that each and every one of us here have to make a decision about who we believe this Jesus is. Pilate says, I believe this man is innocent. I believe he's innocent, and yet he continues to torture. He continues to live a life of fear and contradiction. He contradicts his own sort of internal concept, right? I wonder if there are some of you here today who are undecided about Jesus, some who are waffling back and forth, the in and out, based on where you are and who you're with, and there comes a point where every man and every woman has to make a decision about whether or not this Jesus is truly who he said he was, or whether he was a fraud or a fake. Pilate says, I see no guilt in him. So the first thing we see is that Jesus is called the king of the Jews, and they're right about that. Second thing we see is Pilate calls him innocent, and Pilate's right about that too. It doesn't keep Pilate from continuing to torture and kill him. Look at verse 5. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, behold the man. The third thing we see Jesus referred to in this case is a man. 
He comes out bloodied and beaten. He's got a a purple robe sort of stuck to his back because of the flogging that he's received. He's been punched in the face repeatedly by the Roman soldiers. And what Pilate has tried to orchestrate here is the ability to show the powerlessness of Jesus, to show that he's nothing special. Even if he's a rebel leader, he's not a very powerful rebel leader because look, we took him and we beat him to within an inch of his life. And so he brings this beaten and bloody Jesus out to the crowd and he says, behold what? He doesn't say behold the prophet. He doesn't say behold the rabbi. He doesn't say behold the teacher. He says behold what? The man. No big deal. It's a dismissive address. He tries to set aside the power and the peace and the beauty and the humility and the sacrifice of our king. By saying, oh, he's just, a, just another guy. We flogged him like we flogged everybody else, and it doesn't make a difference. There is nothing spectacular to see here. Behold the man. And I was struck again in my study this week thinking that for the vast majority of people on this planet, when they think about Jesus, all they can behold is the man. It's all they see. They just see a guy. D. James Kennedy sort of famously used to say that people think about Jesus the way they think about Abraham Lincoln. You know, he's a good guy, cared about people, gave some great speeches, and then died before his time. What a bummer, right? Can I, can I tell you, he, he is a man, but he's so much more than a man. When Pilate says, behold the man, he isn't wrong. That is absolutely fully man. That Jesus is fully man in every sense. But he is also fully God, and that's what Pilate misses, That he is fully man and fully God. That Jesus had come down from heaven, as it says in Philippians 2. That he'd made himself nothing. That he'd humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pilate is trying to sort of pull the rug out from underneath any sort of power or authority or danger he might possess. And he says, behold the man. And I think in many cases there are people, maybe even in this own room, who would look at Jesus and only see a man. Can I say to you this morning, church, you gotta look deeper than that. He's more than a man, more than a great speaker, more than a great orator, more than just a a compassionate sort of uh, humanitarian who cared about the poor. Jesus is man, and that's a beautiful thing, but he's so much more than that. In fact, in his bruised and bloody, beaten state, he's only in that state, as we'll see in a second, because of his own choice. Jesus chose that. What we see in the beaten and bloodied face of Jesus is his humility, is his humanity on display. I love what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. The writer of the Hebrews, you may remember if you were in the midst of our study in Hebrews, you may remember this text when we studied it then. But listen to what the writer of the Hebrew, or the writer of the book of Hebrews says about the humanity of Jesus made manifest in his sacrifice and death. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Picture in your mind, if you will, The Lord Jesus with the crown of thorns forced down over his brow. That purple robe stuck to his bloodied back. Beaten within an inch of his life. And listen as the writer of Hebrews says, We see this same Jesus crowned with glory because of his sacrifice. Because of his humanity. Because he chose that. Because he came to earth and took on flesh for us. To rescue us from sin and death. The writer goes on to say, It was fitting that he, for whom and by all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who were being tempted. When we look at the beaten and bloodied picture of Jesus, and Pilate says, behold the man. What he means is behold a guy who actually has no significant impact. Behold a guy who was powerless to stop his own torture. But when we look at him and we behold the man, what we see is the creator of all things who put himself in that situation to rescue us, who shed his blood on our behalf because of his great love for us. They call him a man, and he is a man, but he's not just a man. They call him the king of the Jews, and he is the king of the Jews, but he's not just the king of the Jews. They call him innocent of these charges, and he is, but he's not just innocent of these charges. He's innocent of everything. Back to John chapter 19. Look at the next thing they say about him. He says in, uh, in verse, let's see here, where was I? In verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. I want you to notice how relentless the Jews are in their calling for his death. We'll come back to that. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. The the fourth way in which we see Jesus referred to here is as the son of God. And when they use it, they're using it as a quote. They're calling him the son of God, not because they believe that he's the son of God, but because he himself has claimed that. Here's what I want you to see in that. They're not wrong when they say he said he's the son of God. If you have any question about whether or not the Jewish leaders wondered or whether or not they knew that he was claiming to be divine, that he isn't just a man, that he isn't just a great teacher, that he wasn't just a prophet, but that he was God himself, understand that they are laying at the foot of Jesus here a charge of blasphemy. They're laying at the foot of Jesus. They are calling him essentially a blasphemer. Why? because he has claimed to be the son of God. And they have a law that anybody who claims to be on equal standing with God must die. That is the charge. They're calling him a blasphemer here. So the next thing we see, they call him the son of God, but in essence, when they say that, they don't mean it. What they mean is, this man's a blasphemer. Here's why it's significant. Because they knew full well what he had said about them, what he had said about himself. They knew full well that he had claimed to be more than a man and more than a teacher And they were putting him on trial for those claims. These men, these chief priests were accountable for the death of Christ. Not because they were ignorant, not because they were ignorant to who he was or what he had said or what he taught, but precisely because they knew exactly what he had said. I think sometimes we sort of look at them and go, well, they didn't understand it. They weren't very clear on what he had claimed. No, the chief priests here understand exactly who he had said he was. They say that he's the son of God. He has to be punished. He's a blasphemer. 
And it says then that Pilate is disturbed by that, right? Look at verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. What that tells us is that he was already afraid. He was already afraid because he had the pressure of, of making sure that he was controlling that area well, right? As a governor of this Hebrew area, he had the pressure from the Roman leadership. And there was all kinds of turmoil going on in Rome, especially for guys like Pilate, whose allegiance was maybe a little bit suspect, whether or not he was truly allegiant to Caesar. So he had the pressure of his own role, pressure of his own position. On top of that, we see in Matthew 27, in verse 19, that his wife had said to him, hey, I want you to be really careful what you do about this Jesus because he's a righteous man. And I had a dream about it. Matthew 27, excuse me, yeah, verse 19. It says, besides while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. He had the pressure of his position. He had the pressure of governing these people who were rallying against him. He had the pressure of a prophetic dream that his wife had. And then on top of all of that, you put the fact that as a Roman citizen, he would have believed uh, in the mythology of a pantheon of gods. The Romans believed, like the Greeks, that there were these gods, multiple gods, and that the gods had these children that would come to earth and kind of mess around with you, right? Right? That these children would come to earth and cause all kinds of trouble and be disruptive. And so when they look at Pilate and they say, this man needs to die because he claims to be a god, it was increasingly disturbing to Pilate because he believed in a system that, that sort of endorsed the coming of godlike creatures to do disruptive harm. And so Pilate is even more afraid. And he calls Jesus back in and he says, where are you from? Back to John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, he, uh, <clears throat> in verse 9, it says, He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? He's trying to get to the heart of this accusation that maybe Jesus is supernatural. He says, Where are you from? And Jesus doesn't answer him. It says, But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? The way that verse could just as easily be translated based on the original language as he could have said, to me, you're not going to speak, right? Do you know who I am? The next thing I want you to see that, that Pilate implies is that Jesus is powerless here. That he's powerless. It's been implied that he's a, it's been stated that he's a blasphemer. It's been stated that he's the king, although wrongfully so. Here, Pilate is looking at him and saying, do you understand where the power lies, man? The power lies with me. I'm Pilate. I got all the cards, right? I am the ultimate authority here. It's going to be up to me whether you live or die. And you're not going to talk to me? You think that's wise? You think it's smart not to talk to the guy that holds your very life in his hands, Pilate says? And it's interesting to me because I, I was struck in my studying to recognize that much of our relational and social interaction in, in this country and in this time period is based on establishing who we are first, right? We enter into conversations with other people and we expect them to treat us judiciously or we expect them to treat us fairly based on who we are, where we've been, what we've done, maybe what family we come from, maybe how much money we make, maybe what kind of car we drive. But so much of our, our interaction with one another is based and predicated upon this sort of inflation of my own self, that I deserve to be heard and I deserve to be listened to and my opinions matter because I'm kind of a big deal, right? That's the way we enter into conversations with people all the time. It's why we're working hard to show, you know, that we make a lot of money or that we have a fancy car or that people respect us. It's why we want to have a ton of followers on social media or whatever. 
Because our whole world is geared around like, tell us why we should listen to you. Why are you worth listening to? Why do you matter? And Pilate's got the very self-same approach. He says, Jesus, do you understand who I am? Do you understand who you're talking to? I got all the power. I hold your life in my hands. And if, if at any point, even with the bloody face, we see Jesus kind of crack a smile. I think maybe we see him crack a smile here. Pilate said, do you know who I am? You're powerless here, dude. And it's like Jesus goes, oh, hey, man. Uh, you would not have a single ounce of authority if it hadn't been given to you by God. All authority, all authority is ordained by God, right? Jesus says you wouldn't have any authority at all. And I, I hate to burst your bubble here, Pilate, but actually in this case, even the authority you have is, is lesser than the responsibility that God gave to the Jewish leaders. He says, this is Jesus's response. He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate's just puffed himself up and said, you know who I am. And now Jesus goes, yeah, I know who you are. And you're a guy who only has authority because God has given it to him. And in this particular circumstance, your authority isn't even the most important. Your voice isn't even the most important one. Because you don't even know exactly who I am. You haven't heard all that I've taught. You haven't witnessed all the things that the prophets have said for hundreds of years. But Caiaphas, the one who delivered me over to you, Judas, my disciple, the one who was complicit in that, these people who know me, who have seen me, who understand what the prophets foretold and have still chosen to turn away from me, their responsibility is actually more significant than yours. So I hate to ruin the party for you, Pilate, but you're not as big of a deal as you think. I think that's significant because there may be many of us in this room, and I don't know all of you, but there may be some of you who are having a hard time surrendering your life to Jesus because you want to come to Jesus on terms of your position and your power and your credibility. You want to come to Jesus and say, hey, I'm kind of a big deal, Jesus. Do you want me to follow you or not? If you do, well, then you need to be answering my prayers. You need to make sure you fill up my bank account with money because you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a big deal. And what you fail to understand is that when we come to Jesus, we cannot come with a position of pride. There is nothing that we have and nothing that we are that God needs. Everything is done the other way. When we come to Jesus, we have to come with a broken and contrite spirit. We have to come on our knees saying, I am spiritually and morally and emotionally bankrupt. And it doesn't matter how much I make at my job. It doesn't matter what kind of car I drive. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses I know. It doesn't matter how much other people love me and think I'm great. I am bankrupt apart from the saving work of Christ. And I need you. If you've been coming to Jesus from, from a position of like, hey, Jesus, let's see what we can do for each other, you fundamentally misunderstood what the nature of that relationship is. Because everything we have and everything we are is given to us from above. We need him. And it's only when we're broken. It's only when we recognize we're bankrupt. It's only when we recognize that we're sinful and dying in our sin. And we come to Jesus and say, I got nothing. Will you save me? That our lives are transformed. Pilate says, do you know who I am? And Jesus goes, actually, yeah, I do. And it ain't that great. <laughs> Let's continue to look here at what happens. The leaders then say this. This is sort of the last 
charge that's given here. It says in verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. Why? Because he still got that conflict inside himself. He sees Jesus as innocent. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Here's the second charge brought against Jesus that is false. They call him a traitor. They've already called him a blasphemer. Now they say, because Jesus has made himself up to be a king, he stands in direct opposition to Tiberius, the Caesar, and anybody who opposes the Caesar is a traitor and deserves to die. And frankly, Pilate, if you align yourself with someone who's treasonous, then you're a traitor too. Jesus is not a traitor. Why? Because Jesus is the king of all kings. Jesus is Tiberius' king, right? And yet they lay that charge at his feet. They call him a traitor and a blasphemer. It's interesting and significant to note that the two things that Jesus is crucified for from a strictly human level, he's crucified on the charges of treason and blasphemy. The two things that he's accused of, that he's tried and convicted of, and, and that he's crucified for, treason and blasphemy, he's innocent of. He hasn't done those things. But what is also significant and interesting to me is that those two very things, treason and blasphemy, are at the heart of all of our sin. While he is not guilty of it, each and every one of us in this room is guilty of those things at the core of who we are. He went to the cross and died for us because we are traitors, because we are blasphemers. Right? Even Pilate is a good example. Pilate is a traitor. He's a traitor to his own conscience. He repeatedly says, I don't find any guilt here, and yet he goes against what he knows in himself. He himself is a traitor to his own design, and that is true of so many of us. You and I were created to know God and to be loved by God and to have a relationship with God. We were created to commune with him. Right, And yet we, we are adulterers in our lives all the time. We're cheating on him all the time with all of these other lovers. Why does Pilate make the choices he makes? Because he wants to serve himself. Because he wants to hold on to his position. Because he wants to save his own neck. And so he is treasonous against his own conscience because he wants to preserve what he thinks is more valuable. Can I tell you that is the plight of mankind? But there may be many of you in the room who are traitorous against your own design. God created you to glorify him with your thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. And you're running around behind his back with all these other lovers. And he died, not because he was a traitor, but because I am a traitor. Jesus is no blasphemer. But you know who is a blasphemer? The chief priests. You and I, we're the blasphemers. What do the chief priests do? Let's keep reading here. They say you're no friend of Caesar if you let this man go. Verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. This isn't, this isn't just like some random strangers in the crowd of Jewish accusers. This is the chief priests, my friend. In this moment, the chief priests of the Hebrew nation in Jerusalem claim to have no king but Caesar. You want to talk about blasphemy? The chief priests here are guilty as blasphemers. They abandon the authority of God and they claim no king but Caesar out of envy, which we see Matthew 27, 18 says, Pilate knew they were envious. They claim no king but Caesar out of envy and an effort to protect themselves and advance their agenda. 
I wonder if there are places in your life where you have all the right things to say about God. You can say he's the king of the Jews, and you can say he's innocent, and you can say he's a God and man. You can say all the right stuff. You check all the boxes on the theology test. But the reality is that you blaspheme against him because you have taken him off the throne, and you've put yourself on the throne, right? I think many times we want to make Christianity a a, a democracy, right? As Americans, we like democracy. Everybody gets a vote. Everybody has a say. But can I tell you, discipleship is not democracy. It's monarchy. It's always been monarchy. Jesus is the king. He's the king. And in those moments where we make ourselves out to be God, we make ourselves out to be the king, we are the blasphemers. When we take him out of his proper role and we put ourselves in it, we are the blasphemers and the traitors. Jesus goes to the cross with them saying he's a traitor and a blasphemer, but let me tell you what, he goes there not because he's either of those things, but because we are. I wonder if there isn't a call for us to look into our own lives. Three points of application I would want you to think about as we finish this morning. The first one is, for those of you that are here and you think undecided is sort of an acceptable place to sit with regard to Jesus, can I tell you that, it, that it, if you're making a decision to just sort of ignore the issue, Pilate, right, he goes in and out, he goes back and forth, and ultimately he, he tries in Matthew 27 to wash his hands of this man's blood. You, you cannot abstain from making a decision about Jesus. You have to make a decision. And even what might feel like a non-decision to you is a decision against it says in John uh, 3.17 that those who have not believed are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the Son of God. If you're here today and you've been going back and forth, if you've been trying to make up your mind about Jesus and you feel this inner conviction, you feel the Spirit of God drawing you to Christ to surrender yourself, can I, can I implore you? Can I say to you as a friend and a brother, you have to make a decision about the Lord Jesus. There is a moment in time where you have to recognize your own spiritual bankruptcy and you have to say the time for decision has come. Jesus, will you save me from sin and death? Will you rescue me because you are the king? Because you are the perfect one? Because you are the savior of the world? And so if you're waffling, if you're in and out, I would, I would encourage you, will you come to Jesus Will you, will you reject the approach of Pilate who was traitorous to his own conviction and instead follow the leading of God and surrender yourself fully to this Jesus? There's, there's another point of application this morning and it's for those of us who should know better but live practical lives of blasphemy. I said at the beginning that sometimes what we say doesn't match up with what we do. And I wonder if there aren't some of us who've been in the church for a long time and we get all the titles right, we get all the answers right, but the life we live, a life where we're the king, where our selfishness reigns, where our desires are the most important thing, I wonder if our life isn't living out a practical kind of blasphemy that says, yeah, 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 no, I believe there's a God, but practically speaking, I'm calling the shots. I wonder if there isn't a place where we have to repent of that. And in fact, the last thing I'll say here is, uh, and this will sound a little bit weird, but in some ways I'm actually really impressed with the persistence of the Jews to see Jesus dead. Again and again, Pilate comes out and says, hey, well, you know, I don't find any, any guilt in him. And they keep saying, crucify him, kill him, away with him, crucify him. They, they are single, singularly focused. They are focused on the death of Jesus. I, I was struck this week as I studied it, and I was thinking about how passionate they are about seeing him dead. And it occurred to me, what if I was that passionate about dying to myself? What if I was so singularly focused 
in saying to my own sinfulness and my own selfishness, my own pride, my own ego, away with it, away with it, crucify it, right? If I had that kind of singular focus, how would my life and my testimony and my witness, my discipleship and my worship of the Lord Jesus change if I was that passionate about putting myself to death? the way they were passionate about putting the Lord Jesus to death. They were wrong. But how right would it be for us to put our lives down with that kind of passion? Change the world. We want to finish our service this morning with a, with a time of response and contemplation. And we're just going to have a time of silence. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And in this time of silence, I, I just kind of, I would just love to ask you as a friend, and a brother, and a, and a guy who's wrestling with all this same stuff. Have you made a decision about Jesus? Have you, have you surrendered your life to Christ and said, will you save me from sin and death? And if you haven't, I, I would absolutely invite you and encourage you right where you sit to call out to Jesus and say, will you rescue me? I'm, I'm bankrupt. If you're here and you're a follower of Christ, I would ask you to look into your own life and, and maybe assess the places where you get the answers right and then you follow the right answers with a blasphemous life. A life that says you're God and that you're on the throne. And then lastly, I would ask you in this moment of silence to just evaluate how passionate you are about dying to yourself, about putting your life down. Can you be as passionate as those misguided Jewish people were in their, their desire to see Jesus crucified? Could you be that passionate about laying your own life down in the service of Jesus? Let's listen to the Spirit of God in this moment of silence, and then uh, the team here will lead us in a response of worship through song as well.